If you have your Bibles, would you open with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6? We're not going to start there, but we're going to eventually get there. The other verses I'll have on the screen in front of you, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Uh, you see in front of you, every Sunday uh, we have, just from kindergarten through fourth grade, we have uh, about five to 600 kiddos. In the summer months, some of our helpers and teachers take the summer off, so we have some needs. If you look on the blue insert on the bottom, it's an opportunity for you to serve our little ones that are out there. And uh, especially in the preschool area at this hour, we have a lot of needs. So please take a look at that. It's your opportunity to serve the body. Many of you have had the benefit of being taught God's word for many, many years. And it's an opportunity for you to give back. And you may say, well, I'm too old to do that. No, you're not. We will uh, give you some, uh, some uh, what's it called, red, uh, what's it called, bull, what, what, what's the little things? It's little things I don't drink at the energy drink. What's it called? We're going to give you Red Bull. That's it. I got Red and Bull, but not together. We'll give you some of that, and you can keep going, baby. Uh, so take a look at that and respond accordingly. We are in the midst of a series we've entitled Shipwrecked, and what we're saying is if we do not understand the foundations of the faith, our doctrinal foundations, just like Alexander and Hymenus in 1 Timothy chapter 1, where it says their faith was shipwrecked, if we do not have a firm foundation, our faith will be shipwrecked as well. Last week we studied the doctrine of sin. It's called homardiology. This week we look at a message I've entitled salvage. We're going to look at the doctrine of salvation, and that is called soteriology. To salvage something. To salvage something, according to the dictionary, means to save something that has been used, damaged, or rejected. It means to rescue something from a bad situation or destruction. So you take something that is uh, used, damaged, or rejected, or something in a bad situation of destruction, and you rescue it or you save it. That's what it means to be salvaged. In our world, we salvage a lot of things. We salvage cars. You look at uh, old cars that have been uh, banged up, beat up, and uh, wrecked, and we salvage cars. We sell them for their scrap metal or for their parts, and we salvage those things. We salvage animals. Uh, This is a rescue dog who had been hit by a car, was crippled. They uh, made some uh, devices for him, prosthetic devices to walk with, so we salvaged it. We salvaged ships. This was a tanker that was turned over. It was actually pulled up, righted, and they salvaged it. Just recently in Israel, this is called the Jesus Boat. You can actually go to a museum at Nafkinasar Kibbutz, and you can see this boat that was found uh, about the 1980s, and it's actually a boat from the era of Jesus' time. gives you an idea of what it looks like, and it's time. We salvage marriages, don't we? We pray that God will take marriages that have been pulled apart and put back together, and we salvage them. I shared about how a marriage was salvaged a number of years. Last year I shared how a marriage had been salvaged. There was a couple celebrating their 35th wedding anniversary and also their 60th birthdays at the same time. And as they were uh, having dinner, a genie appeared to them and said they could have one wish granted. And so the wife looked at her husband with a twinkle in her eye. She looked at the genie and said, I would like to travel the world on a cruise. So the genie waved her hand and uh, boom, there were tickets in her hand for a round the world cruise. The husband turned away from his wife for a second and said quietly under his breath to the genie, I'd like to have a wife 30 years younger than me. The genie waved her wand and boom, he was 90 years old. We salvage a lot of things. That's one marriage that was salvaged in a whole different way than we can imagine. Last week we saw that man is depraved. The good news is depraved man can become saved man. We can become salvaged. 
And that's what we're going to look at this morning. There are a number of rich theological terms found in the scriptures that talk about our salvation. And what I'd like to do is focus on those particular words or particular doctrines. The first is the doctrine of substitutionary atonement, or the aspect of Christ's salvation in us, substitutionary atonement. Substitutionary atonement means Christ died as our substitute for the payment of our sins. When we talk about Christ being our substitutionary atonement, basically what that means is Christ died as our substitute for the payment of our sins. We see that exemplified in the scriptures in a number of places. Here in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, it says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. Basically what that scripture teaches us is that Christ became our substitute. He became our ransom. He is the one who paid the price on our behalf. So he was our substitute. Substitutionary atonement, substitute when the place of atonement, one who covers. He is the one who, in our place, covered our sin. In 1 Peter 3, 18, it basically teaches the same thing. For Christ died for sins once for all. He died for our sins. That means he is our substitute. He was the just, we were the unjust, the just for the unjust. Why? So that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So if you pick that particular verse apart about substitutionary atonement, what it teaches is he died for sins once for all. He was our once and for all substitute. We no longer worship with bulls and goats and sheep, etc. And we don't bring those to worship with us because we have a once for all sacrifice. That's Jesus who gave his life on our behalf. He is our substitutionary once and for all atonement that paid the price for our sins. Why? So that we might have peace with God. And so the first rich theological term of terms we're going to use are substitutionary atonement. He died in our place to cover our sins. That's the first aspect of salvation. There's a great illustration of that that comes out of World War II comes out of World War II. I'm going to get there eventually. Here we go. There we go. World War II. How many of you saw the movie The Boy in the Striped Pajamas? If you saw that movie, uh, it was a great movie, tragic movie, sad movie, but a true movie. Uh, This is a picture from Auschwitz. If you know anything about World War II, Auschwitz was a terrible place of uh, concentration camp for the Jews. In Auschwitz, over 4 million Jews met their demise. We were in Israel, as you know, just a couple of weeks ago. We visited the Holocaust Museum, and it's just a tragedy to revisit that time in our world's history. But at Auschwitz, there's an interesting story. Auschwitz, four million Jews died. Actually, if you go to the museum at Auschwitz, there's a half a ton of human hair that's been preserved. There are literally hundreds of shoes from people who lost their lives at Auschwitz. Over four million Jews. They'd go to the showers and rather than water coming out, gas would come out and the Jews would be exterminated. There was one bright spot in Auschwitz. Had to do with this man right here. His name is Maximilian Kolbe. On a particular day in August of 1941, I'm sorry, a little later, August 14th of that year, in the internment camp at Auschwitz, a prisoner escaped. And the Nazis had a policy at Auschwitz that if one prisoner escaped, ten Jews died because of it. And so that prisoner escaped. The next day there's a roll call. The roll call was to bring ten prisoners forward who would be executed because one prisoner had escaped. As the roll call took place, there was a man named Genowitz whose name was called. He immediately began to weep and cry out, I've got a wife and five kids. I've got a wife and five kids. Please don't kill me. He made his way to the front, and as he made his way to the front, there was a rustling among the rest of the the prisoners who were in formation, and the rustling was from this man, Maximilian Colby. He was a monk who loved Jesus. 
He, he was known as the saint of Auschwitz before this particular day in August. He was known as a saint because he would share food, which was unheard of in Auschwitz, because you barely get enough food to stay alive. He was known as a saint of Auschwitz because if somebody who was sick was dying, he would give them his bunk and he would sleep on the floor. The saint of Auschwitz, Maximilian Kolbe. On this day when Jaginowitz was beginning to scream out, I've got a wife and five kids, he came from the line. Everybody expected the SS officers just to kill him on the spot because prisoners could not do that. And he was crying out in German, Er Kommandant, Er Kommandant, I'll be glad to take his place. And for some reason the Commandant looked at Maximilian Kolbe and said, Done. And he let Jaginowitz go back in the line And he took the ten prisoners, but instead of executing them, in his anger he said, instead of shooting you, we're going to starve you. And so they placed them in a special place in confinement, the ten prisoners. They didn't give them water, nor did they give them food. They began to die off one by one. I read these words. It said, the saint of Auschwitz outlived the other nine. In fact, he didn't die of thirst or starvation. He died only after the camp doctor injected phenol into his heart. The date was August 14, 1941. Gajinowicz actually survived the Holocaust. He went back to his hometown in Poland. His family survived the Holocaust. His wife and five kids, which is a miracle in itself. As soon as the war ended on August 14th of every year, Gajinowicz went back to Auschwitz, and he did it every single year with a bouquet of flowers to honor Maximilian Kolbe, who died in his place. That's substitutionary atonement. Now, the problem with that illustration, even though he was a godly man and a good man, he was a sinful man. Jesus came, the just for the unjust to place himself on the cross on our behalf as our substitute so that we might have life. And as moving as the story of Maximilian Kolbe is, the realization is we have a Savior who gave his life. And just as Jaginowitz would go back and pay tribute every single August 14th to the one who died in his place, our lives should be filled with honoring the one who died in our place. Our lives should be lives of worship. Our lives should be lives of gratitude. Our lives should be lives of service. Because just like Gajinowitz, who had someone die in his place, we had someone die in our place. And that's why we structured the service the way we did this morning. We're going to bring the worship team back up after this message. And we are going to give thanks, and we're going to honor, and we're going to worship the one who died on our behalf. Substitutionary atonement. The next word is a rich word. It's the word redemption. It's a payment made for liberation. You have 1 Corinthians 6 in front of you. In 1 Corinthians 6, at the end of that chapter, it says in verses 19 and 20, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, that you are not your own? Then in verse 20, you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God with your body. If you've got the word redeemed there or bought with a price, underline that in the body, uh, underline that in your Bible because it's a rich theological word, the word for redemption. We are redeemed from sin. We are redeemed, this is what that verse teaches, we're redeemed from sin, we're redeemed by Christ, and we are redeemed to freedom. If you look at that verse, we are redeemed from sin. 
It says, do you not know your body temple of the Holy Spirit and God dwells in you? You've been bought with a price. What have you been bought with a price? What have you been redeemed from? You've been redeemed from sinfulness. Who redeemed you? Jesus redeemed you. And what's your responsibility or privilege after that? To glorify him with your life. And so you have been redeemed from sin by Christ to freedom. From sin by Christ to freedom. The word redeem is a rich, rich word. It's a word that comes out of the slave trade. Agarazo is the word. It means to purchase a slave or a prisoner for the purpose of giving their freedom. And so if you went to an auction and you purchased a slave, or if there was a prisoner who was available to be bought, you would go and pay the price and you would redeem them. There's a, in the Old Testament, there's a great picture of this. It's the book of Hosea. Remember that story? Hosea is a godly prophet. He marries a woman named Gomer. After they have one child named Jezreel, they have two more. But the problem is after Jezreel was born, the Go- Hosea would go out to prophesy. When he would go out to prophesy, his wife Gomer would go out to play. And while he was a man of God, she became a, a woman of the world. And the scriptures say she became a prostitute and she began to worship the pagan gods. And you can only imagine Hosea's life. He's got three kids and no wife. His bed is no longer a bed of tenderness, but tears, no longer a bed of love, but of loneliness. Day after day, he would go out to prophesy, and he would begin to look for his wife. And the scriptures tell us in the second chapter of Hosea, he even brought gifts to give her, but she and her lovers mocked him. The scriptures teach us that Hosea's relationship with Gomer and Gomer's harlotry is an example of what was taking place in the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel, just like Gomer who turned her back on her husband, the nation of Israel turned their back upon God. And rather than worshiping God, they prostituted themselves with other gods, just like Gomer did to her husband Hosea. And then in chapter 3, there's an amazing section. It says that God spoke to Hosea, and he said, go and get your wife. And because of the way it plays out, we know that she's being sold as a slave. She's a used, has-been prostitute who at some point in time became a slave because he gets her through bidding. And you can only picture the scene in your mind. Hosea makes his way through the streets because it's the day of the slave auction. and He comes to the place where the auction's going to happen. And as he gets there, different slaves come up and finally he sees a woman he can barely recognize. And when the bidding begins, the prophet calls out. And I'm sure the crowd backed away in hushed silence as they watched a man bid on his wife because they all know the story of the prophet and his wayward prodigal prostituting wife. In that day, 30 shekels would buy a healthy slave. The scriptures tell us Hosea bought her for 15 shekels and some barley. And so the gavel sounds soul to the prophet, and I imagine everybody laughed, and then they looked forward to anticipation. What would he do? You see, according to the law, he could cast the first stone, and she could be stoned to death because of her adultery and her prostitution, and, and he could cast that first stone, and the whole community could join in, and she could be executed right there under the law. Or he could send her away just as Joseph sent Mary away or could have sent Mary away when he found out she was pregnant. He could have done that with her. But instead the scriptures say he took his wife and said, no man shall have you, you're mine. Do you see the picture, my friends? 
It's a picture of our redemption. It's a picture of what our Savior has done for us. We too were once His, but we turned our back on Him through sin. And what we find out is that even though we were depraved, we can be saved because we are Savior who paid the price of redemption for us. And because He paid that price of redemption and bought us off of the slave block of sin, we can have life. And we should go, thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Because we, because you have paid the price of redemption. How many of you know what that is? If you're 40 and older, you know what that is. If you're 40 and younger, you have no idea what that is. Those are wooden cases containing Coke bottles and 7-Up and Pepsi bottles. Found them online. Because you don't do this anymore. I mean, it's a picture of redemption. If you're over 40, you remember returning glass soda bottles to the store to receive deposit money. Do you remember that? You actually brought them back. Bottling companies would buy their bottles back, clean them, refill them, and send them back out. It was a process called redemption. Now, if you're under 40, you don't know redemption, but you know recycling. (laughs) Redemption is a little different from recycling in one important way. While recycling typically destroys something in order to reuse it, redemption buys something back and, and, and puts it back to its original design and purpose. You see, recycling typically destroys and then it reuses. Redemption takes an old bottle and makes that bottle like new back to its original design and purpose to be used. Christ has paid the price for your redemption. Donald Bloss says this, the prison has been stormed, the gates of the prison have been opened, but unless we leave our prison cells and go forward into the light of freedom, we are still unredeemed. Just because Christ has paid the price of redemption does not mean you're redeemed. If you didn't bring those bottles back, you didn't get your deposit back. So likewise, Christ has paid the price of redemption, and it's only when you accept his offer of forgiveness that that redemption is applied to your life. It's a beautiful picture of God's love for us. In fact, one author said, in creation we see God's hand, in redemption we see God's heart. You, he has paid the price for your redemption. So two quick applications. Number one, if the price has been paid, have you accepted him? Have you accepted him? the one who paid the price. Number two, redemption frees us from sin so we can serve our Savior. Let me repeat that. Redemption frees us from sin so we can serve our Savior. In 1 Corinthians 6, you hold it in your hand. In verse 20, you have been bought with a price so that you can wait and go to heaven. Is that what it says? You've been bought with a price so you can enjoy personal fulfillment. You've been bought with a price so you can have peace of mind. You've been bought with a price so that you can have happiness. Hey, isn't that the way most believers live? We experience salvation to bring us personal fulfillment, peace of mind, and happiness. I mean, if you suck that out of of the spiritual life, people say, I don't want to sign up for that. Those things may be byproducts of coming to know Jesus as your Savior. You may experience personal fulfillment. You may experience peace of mind. You may experience happiness. But the primary reason Christ gave his life for you is so you would glorify God with your life. One of the biggest problems I see in the evangelical church in the late 20 and 21st century is that we have turned the focus from Jesus to ourselves. The spotlight doesn't shine upon the Savior. The spotlight shines upon us. 
Hey, we want to experience these things. We live our lives for personal fulfillment, peace of mind, and for happiness. Francis Schaeffer wrote a, wrote a book and did a video series that explained this. And he said, whatever happened to the human race is this is what we're after. We're after personal peace. We're after affluence. We're after happiness. And Paul writes and says, the reason you have been saved is to give glory to God. The reason you're saved is so that you might be free to honor him and to serve others. So we've got to take the spotlight off ourselves and put it up on him and upon others. Rick Warren, in his book, Purpose Driven Life, said one of the most difficult things to do in the church in the 21st century is to turn consumers into servants. And he's right. At the start of that book, in the introductory chapter, he says, in the purpose-driven life, it's not about you. The purpose of your life is far greater than your own personal fulfillment, your own peace of mind, and even your own happiness. Wow. So two questions. Are you grateful for the one who gave his life for you? Do you worship him, honor him every day? And number two, who are you serving? Who are you serving? I'm grateful for this body filled with servants. You heard the numbers for impact. Dozens and dozens of people involved, serving, driving, providing homes, kids, giving up two weeks of summer, people preparing food. We've got people serving kids every single Sunday morning. We've got people serving as elders, as deacons, as fixing things around our building. We've got people serving by opening their homes for small groups. We've got people teaching classes. We've got a mercy team providing meals. We've got uh, people who serve neighbors to reach Jesus, and, and, and we do everything. For the sake of God. That should be our goal. Some of you volunteer at Hope Pregnancy Center. Some of you from Young Lives. Some of you Young Lives. Some of you go into prison. Some of you support our missionaries. You pray. You give. You communicate. Some of you serve the poor and needy in our community through Salvation Army, Christian Farms, Treehouse, Churches Touching Lives for Christ. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And the question is, who are you serving? See, if you're not serving anybody... Scripture says in Ephesians 2.10, he's left you here to do good works. You're not saved by good works, but you're saved for good works. And if you are not serving anyone, the spotlight is fixed upon you. And you just need to come to baptism next Sunday night, and we'll hold you under and send you to glory. I mean, really, if your life is about you, why? If you won't let your neighbors borrow your tools... And you're not the lady who they can come and get eggs and milk from. And you're, you're the guy who says, I'm not going to volunteer to pick up my neighbor's mail when they go on vacation or, or water his plants or whatever it is. Help me understand that as a believer. I don't get it. If you're not the most generous person on your block, why not? If you live in the same house for five years and don't know your neighbor's, I believe it's sinful because God has placed you there to be a lighthouse for him. Otherwise, it's all about you and your swimming pool and your TV and whatever else it is you've got. And he said, I've left you here to glorify me. That's to honor him and to serve others. And that may sound harsh on my part. But I think what's happened is a spotlight of the church in the 20 and 21st century has made people focus upon themselves rather than upon him and others. And that's wrong. Redemption. Payment for liberation. Reconciliation. 
Reconciliation means a change of relationship from hostility to harmony between two parties. If Bev and I got in a little tiff today, this afternoon, and, and uh, she was right because she's always right and I was wrong, um, when I came to her and said, Bay, I am so sorry for being such an idiot once again. Would you forgive me? And when we came, making up as a sweet part of this, when I don't get mad at her so we can make up, but if we did, uh, when we come back together in harmony from our hostility, that's called reconciliation. Reconciliation in spiritual life takes place on two planes. It takes place on the vertical plane and the horizontal plane. The vertical plane, we become reconciled to God. On the horizontal plane, we're reconciled to other people. Paul brings this out in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It says, all things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. How are you reconciled? You're reconciled through Christ. And he gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. So what is the ministry of reconciliation? It's the ministry of telling other people how can they be brought in harmony with God. That is the gift, that, that is evangelism. We tell other people, that's the ministry of reconciliation. We tell other people about Jesus, how they can be in harmony with the living God. And he goes on and he says, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making appeal through us. God is using us to make an appeal to others so that we beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled. I grew up in a little Baptist church in New Orleans. We went to RAs on Sunday, on Wednesday nights. RAs was called Royal Ambassadors. This was our verse. We're ambassadors for Christ. And it says, he who he made him who knew no sin to become sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. My two questions for you regarding reconciliation is, are you in harmony with God? Number two, are you in harmony with everyone else? Have you accepted Christ so that you're in harmony with God? Are you introducing other people to the Savior so they can be in harmony with him? You got a 10 most wanted list you're praying for? You got a Crispus you're praying for? Crispus, the most unlikely guy to get saved in all of Corinth. Look at Acts chapter 18, verse 8. Jot it down, take a look at it. I've referred to it a number of times. He was a synagogue official who got saved. The least likely person in Corinth to get saved was Crispus. Who's your Crispus? Who's the least likely person in your world to get saved? You praying for him? Who's on your 10 most wanted list? You praying for him? The ministry of reconciliation. Then that ministry goes out this way. Are you reconciled to others? Are you reconciled to other people? Have you walked in the area of forgiveness? Are you one who makes sure that relationships are the way they should be? D.L. Moody was a great preacher in Chicago back in the 1800s. One Sunday he got in the pulpit and he was ready to preach and he noticed someone in the congregation who he was at odds with. He promptly asked the audience to stand. He announced to him, had the song leader come up. Sankey was a song leader. In the middle of the song, he went into the congregation, tapped the guy on the shoulder, asked for his forgiveness, prayed with him while the people were singing. Then he came back to the pulpit and proceeded to preach. I'm getting ready to do that right now. I'm not, actually. I'm not aware of anyone I need to do that with right now. But if I was, that should be what I do. That should be what you do. Because in Matthew 5, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, you come to worship and somebody has something against you, you put down your sacrifice and go and be reconciled. Or you're reconciled with your brothers and sisters in Jesus.
Next word is the word, uh, we're reconciled, how we're reconciled, the object of reconciliation to us. I've done all these. I don't know why I didn't do that sooner. The next word is election. Election is that eternal act of God whereby, where he, by his sovereign good pleasure and account of no unforeseen merit in man, chooses a certain number of men to be the recipients of eternal salvation. If you'd like to hear a sermon on that, you can go online. I preached a whole message on that about three months ago when we did Ephesians. We taught Ephesians 1, the second message in Ecclesia, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Regeneration is the act by which we are born again. Jesus told Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Justification is us being declared righteous. It's when God sounds the gavel over our lives and says, innocent, innocent, rich, words of salvation. All his sin falls short of the glory of God, but we are justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption we have in Christ Jesus. He is our substitutionary atonement. He is our redeemer. He is our reconciler. He is the one who has chosen us. He is the one who regenerates us. He is the one who justifies us. He declares us innocent for all of eternity. Salvation is God's gift to a lost world. Our Savior came, gave himself on our behalf as our substitutionary atonement, as our Redeemer, so we can be reconciled as those who have been chosen before the foundations of the world to be given a new heart that has to be born again, to be declared innocent, for all of eternity. That's our Savior. Kajinowitz went back to Auschwitz every August to honor the one who died in his place. This morning, we worship the one who died in our place, who paid it all for our salvation. Father, we thank you. We thank you for a Savior one who is higher, who is stronger than anyone that the world has ever seen. One who knew no sin but became sin on our behalf. One who lived a life not just an example, but one who gave his life as an atonement. If you're here today and you're not sure Jesus Christ is your Savior, maybe you understand what redemption is about, but you've never placed your faith in the Redeemer. Redeemer. 